Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erin Brown, the North Africa editor at New Lines. And today I'm joined by our global news editor, Amy Ferris-Rotman, for a slightly different episode than we broadcast before. Hi, Amy, welcome. Hi, Erin. It's nice to be here. So one of the purposes of journalism is to uncover injustice and to hold the powerful to account. This fall, New Lines has published a series of investigations from around the world that through dogged on the ground reporting, working with open source intelligence and Freedom of Information Act requests have shed light on major injustices and the governments that have perpetrated them. Today, we're bringing you Amy and my conversations with the reporters for two of those stories. One looking into the Nigerian army's campaign of arbitrary detentions, extrajudicial killings, and mass burials in its attempt to combat Boko Haram in the country's Northeast. And the other, an examination of the ecological and health disasters emerging in the wake of the U.S.'s war in Afghanistan. So, Amy, we're going to start with your conversation with our contributor, Lindsay Billing, on her investigation in Afghanistan. We'll put a link to the piece in the show notes, but for those who haven't read it yet, do you want to set the story up a little bit? Sure. Thanks, Erin. So this story, which the author first started working on some years back, investigates the effects of the two-decade U.S. war on the environment and, by turn, on the Afghan people. America's military may have left the country two years ago, but what it left behind in the country is a toxic legacy that may never be fully understood, let alone remedied. Lindsay crisscrossed Afghanistan, which is also the country of her birth, visiting the villages surrounding three of the U.S. military's largest bases. So we've got Bagram just north of Kabul, Jalalabad in the east and Kandahar in the south. What she found is devastating. People are suffering from persistent and severe kidney problems, skin rashes, and even types of cancer. Let's give it a listen. Yeah, Lindsay, your great piece for us, you, you take us to Afghanistan, which has been under Taliban rule for just over two years. And you focus on something that has not been covered by, I think, anyone really, which is the destruction of the environment by the US military during its 20-year war. And it's a searing investigation because you manage to focus on the people, the ordinary Afghans, who have all but been forgotten by the international community, despite the enormous amount of money and attention by the West during the war, which was America's longest. And you take us on this journey to the villages and the areas surrounding three of the US military's largest bases. So my first question for you is, why did you want to do this story? Yeah, thank you, Amy. Um, I think that for me, this story really, it kind of came into my head years ago, really, when, when I went back to Afghanistan in 2019. And, and that was the first time I was I was working as a journalist there. Um, and it kind of came into my head at that time that I really did want to look into the kind of environmental effects from, you know, from the war that was ongoing at the time, and also from these huge bases. And that was really just because you could really visibly see um the pollutants and the waste that these bases were producing. You know, you could see all of this waste coming out in trucks every day. You could see the smoke from the burn pits. There was really no way to, like, avoid what we were seeing. And I was like, well, this is, you know, going to have huge 
effects to the environment um, and environmental damage. And then I think, you know, over the last couple of years, I started thinking, well, what are the kind of health effects that are also tied to tied to this and to these bases? And then I did a story um, recently that also looked at, you know, the effects of pollution and military contamination on Iraqis and the environment in Iraq. And I think there were so many similarities that I was like, no, I really do want to do this piece that that looks at what is the environmental damage and also the health effects uh, in Afghanistan. So that's kind of how it started. I think that's something really powerful that you've managed to do here, which, yeah, as you say, I mean, the United States is gone. The troops are completely gone. The Taliban's in control. And and you got this access um, to well uh, to, to to all sorts of people who are around the bases and are there. And um, if you could walk us through a little bit about um, well your methodology and how how you approached this um, was it I mean was it easy to to speak to locals about the illnesses um, and the conditions they have as a result of the U.S. military being there, um, and and how easy was it to speak to officials as well, Afghan officials? Yeah, it's an interesting one because um, while most of the reporting for this, and it was over like a span of, of like six months, in mostly in 2022, um, there was also, you know, doctors um, that had been working on the bases that I had known for a couple years. And so I had been speaking with over the years and, you know, they would tell me about the patients they were treating and the kind of, you know, common um, health problems they were seeing. Um, I'd also spoken to government officials um, before the U.S. left and and officials from the Republic government, um, a little bit from like the like environmental agencies. And and so over the years, you kind of collect, you know, different bits of information from what they're seeing and their perspective of what's going on. And I think with this story, what was really important was to get this kind of, you know, 360 degree perspective. And as you say, that's residents living right next to these bases, as well as doctors and clinics and health clinics around the bases. And so for me, I think in terms of methodology, it really was, it was a bit of a drive around door knocking job at the beginning, you know, going out to these three bases and really just speaking to as many people around as I could, but then also speaking to local health clinics and taking those findings and, and, and what people have told us back to government officials, which, you know, in the last year has been much more difficult um, to navigate. But, you know, it's important to still be able to, they, a lot of people who work in the environmental agency now ha- have been for the last few years as well. So they have a bit of a history um, with what they've been seeing and what I'm talking to them about. So so interesting when you talked about knocking on doors Um because yeah, I, I do see this piece as, as very much falling into the category of gumshoe journalism. You know, the the kind of old fashioned um, gathering of evidence by being there and speaking to people. I think there's a really great combination here of that gumshoe journalism, but also with Freedom of Information Act methodology in journalism as well. So, can you talk a little bit about that? In terms of the FOIA, I think what quickly became clear was that um, 
it was kind of looking at it from a realistic view and who, who was going to be able to to help out and give some, um, you know, documents or photographs that w- was really going to help me with the research for the story. And um, Cigar... Uh, Cigar, the U.S. Um, watchdog agency, right, that was there for, during the war. Yeah, and they had really been out of a lot of different agencies or kind of watchdog agencies over the years, had maybe done some of the most, uh, you know, monitoring of of the base's waste. I knew that they'd, they'd put out this kind of um, report, I think it was back in uh, 2015, um, which was looking specifically at the burn pits on these bases and, you know, these newly arrived incinerators, which were you know, supposed to replace the burn pits. And so I went to them and I, I I spoke with them about what other, you know, kind of photographs and information they would have gathered at the time. Um, and so the FOIA was filed to them for, for photographs of the burn pits. Um, and this is where all of, you know, from a U.S. side, it was very documented over the years that, you know, they were throwing um, materials into these burn pits that they were not supposed to be. Um, but it's very different when you can see pictures of that, right? And and you can see stacks of aerosol cans next to plastic bottles and, you know, uh, next to a broken incinerator and then, and then a burn pit ablaze. Can you talk a little bit about the specific illnesses that people suffered as a result of this, um, as a result of the burn pits, but also the polluted water? Which, um, which you describe and you document in, in great detail um, at more than one of the bases. So what, what, what diseases did you encounter and how did you go about um, not proving that they are sick, but, but how did you go about verifying that that is indeed what, what these people are suffering from? It kind of started, well, I mean, I spoke with the medical practitioners about um, the kind of health problems they were seeing in areas from areas around these three bases as well in Nangaha, Kandahar and Pawan. Um, and then also, you know, with the residents around and the most common ones that were coming up like on repeat was, you know, kidney problems, um, heart problems, gastrointestinal skin ailments, um, but then also like congenital anomalies as well. And I think that it just started particularly in, um, I remember when I went to Jalalabad and um, was looking, was speaking with people around the base in Jalalabad, that there was just this, you would have whole families that um, had the same health problems, uh, namely kidney problems. Um, But then because, um, they were talking about these contractors dumping sewage in their fields. Um, and I started to think, well, what's inside this sewage, you know, and, and could that be harmful to their to their health? Um, and the sewage going into the fields and the waterways. And, you, and I started to see, well, these are also the same health problems that you see service, uh, U.S. service members coming down with uh, and after they've returned from deployment. And so there was this whole pattern of the same health problems, but and and one thing I do want to note is that these residents have stacks, stacks of medical documents. I mean, they like 
they're spending what little money they have to go to doctors all the time um, for their kids who, you know, with one family, Khan Muhammad's family by Jalalabad, he, two of his kids, one was five and one was seven. And they had just constantly been going to the doctors. So they have these medical reports from doctors in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so I kind of started collecting all, as everyone I spoke to had medical reports to share with me. And and so that was a big part in terms of verifying uh, the health problems. Um, and also, you know, especially when it's within a family with all, all with the same problems. Um, and so, yeah, there was just, and then also, you know, speaking with doctors on the basis, outside the basis, but also international doctors and saying, well, you know, what could these health problems come from? And would, uh, chemicals and sewage potentially, um, at a certain level, cause these health problems or would this cause and going through all the kind of possibilities um to see you know why is that so many people in such a small area were were falling ill with with the same problems the doctors certainly play a really big role in the story um the afghan doctors and i I loved that i i mean you really got a a great sense um of how much they've seen um how much well I suppose, collateral damage. I mean, would you even call this collateral damage of a war? Yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, I, I what I find interesting is that it's so easy to, when you look back, when you look at Afghanistan, to talk about the kind of direct um, injury from, you know, bombs and <laughs> direct fighting. Um, this is, you know, health problem and injury over a long time, this is kind of a lasting effect of it. And um, yeah, I think it's definitely, but I mean, it's also directly, you know, I feel like this is a direct result of just these, you know, the way these bases were operating over the years um, as well. So you mentioned US service members suffering from the same afflictions. And I think that's a really important point about journalism and and the the, the sausage making machine of journalism to be made, which is, and I thought this was extremely clever of you, that you identified and saw a problem that was affecting service members in the United States, a very hot issue. I mean, it's so topical that President Joe Biden spoke about it last year in his State of the Union address, um, and he called on Congress to pass a law to make sure veterans uh, are, you know, devastated by toxic exposures in Iraq and Afghanistan finally get the benefits and the health care that they deserve. And you took that and explored it, and then you looked at this, this, this. I mean, utterly um, <laughs> disgusting absence of any mention of Afghans, um, and then you dedicated the whole story to that. And I think that is a really important way of going about journalism. So my question is, how reliable, or, or rather? Um, this method of seeing a problem which affects people in the United States and then looking at the other side of that and the other side of the coin. um, Do do you think that's an area that's ripe for exploration in other, well, conflicts and other situations around the world? Yeah, I do. I really, I think that, I mean, there was so much said, um, particularly over the last few years about US service members saying, you know, 
they're sick from the burn pits and from the bases and from the activities in Afghanistan. And so little, as you say, um, you know, for Afghan soldiers on the same bases, um, and then even less, um, if at all, for any residents living around. Um, and I think, you know, all this kind of writing about the burn pits just left this huge gap out, which which is Afghans and and. Um, that they like, why would they not come to have the same illnesses as Americans, right? And I think that, you know, the doctors in particular um, in this story and these military doctors who have, you know, some of them with decades of experience treating um, soldiers and working on these bases just had this huge insight into into how these burn pits and how the waste disposal was happening on the bases and and what people were getting ill with. And I think for this story in particular, hearing from Afghan doctors as well as, you know, American service members, the two complement each other in us saying, you know, that there was this this huge problem with waste disposal. Um, it's affecting people's health. And all of this is happening because um, it was just allowed to happen, right? No one was, you know, stopping it. And even after the U.S. left, um, there's no, you know, regulation that said, no, you need to clean up this space um, now that you've left it in Afghanistan, unless it was, you know, uh, arranged prior by some kind of binding international agreement or cleanup plan. There really is nothing that the U.S. has to do to clean it up after or while they are operating on these bases. Um, for me, it was very clear from the very beginning that um, we needed to say these stories, how these people are feeling, um, how they were feeling while the U.S. was in the country and how they're feeling now that they've left, um, which is that their kids are sick and um, they're just left uh, left, and no one, no one's really accountable for it. What an interesting conversation about such a sad and important story. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me was how Lindsay took an issue that had been framed one way for the American public, right? This fight for U.S. veterans to receive health benefits after being exposed to those toxic burn pits, which in and of itself was a big, important story and, and rather a big scandal, and interrogated it on another level to shed light on something we hadn't been thinking or talking about yet. Exactly. And I think therein lies its power as a story, because in many ways, this was an obvious story. It has been done in Iraq. It's already being reported out of Ukraine. And yet no one had done it in Afghanistan, which was the site of America's longest ever war. And I think that in itself is testament to the international community's treatment, particularly that of the US, of Afghanistan. This is a country that was occupied, it was used, and then abandoned, tossed aside, and forgotten. Another thing that really struck me about this work is just how much time Lindsay spent essentially knocking on doors and talking to people about their experiences, their health, their livelihoods, to get a better picture of what had actually gone on. I think sometimes we picture a journalist alone in a room with one of those crazy boards you see in crime movies. You know the ones, right? With all the photos and the newspaper clippings and red thread connecting everything in sort of an incomprehensible web. And there's an element of that. But what makes this kind of reporting important and special is that there are names and faces and life stories that go along with the larger picture. And it really helps give this tragedy an intimacy that you can you can feel. It's palpable. 
Yes, Lindsay's story combined that kind of gumshoe reporting with the less intimate. And I found that combination particularly powerful. So you, you've got all of these testimonies from the people, from the villagers, and then you have the FOIA requests. You have the comparisons of satellite imagery. And both of these components are very difficult and they're also quite crucial. And the, this is what made the story sing. And it, it made me as an editor and no doubt many readers feel full of rage when I finished it at America's wholesale carnage of a country that it was supposedly helping and supporting. And I was full of anger as well at the lack of agencies that Afghans now have. And, and that was something that was achieved by that, that dual approach of reporting. And that on-the-ground work is something that also really defined the other investigation we're talking about today, the story about the missing persons crisis in northern Nigeria, do you want to tell the readers a bit about that before we dive in and listen to your conversation with the reporter? Sure. So this story came to us through a partnership with Human Angle, a great investigative news outlet in Nigeria. When Kunle Adebajo, the head of their investigative desk, approached me about the story, he led with an astounding number. Some 20,000 people are missing in Nigeria, most of whom had disappeared during the government's conflict with Boko Haram, the Islamist militant group. And when we say missing, we mean forcibly disappeared, whether by armed groups or the government. It's more than anywhere else on the African continent. And Kunle wanted to know why they were missing and where they had gone. So over the course of about a year, he and his colleagues started chipping away at that question and uncovered some pretty astounding things. In its effort to combat terrorism in the country's northeast, the Nigerian government had undertaken a campaign of sweeping arbitrary arrests and detentions, extrajudicial killings, and mass burials in and around Maiduguri. Many, many families knew that their loved ones had been taken by the military, but even now, eight or nine years later, they still didn't know for sure if they were dead or alive. Fascinating. Let's listen to your conversation with Kunle, shall we? Kunle, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this really, uh, really important investigation that, that you and the Human Angle team have conducted alongside New Lines. Um, so first, I, I want to ask you, where did the idea for this story come from? How did you start to, to find out about all of these missing people in, in the northeast of, of Nigeria? Yeah, so you need to understand that uh, Nigeria has been facing an insurgency for about 14 years now. Um, we, we have a terror organization known as Boko Haram that read its head in the country. And, you know, Nigeria had not faced such a problem in recent time. There was the Maitatine crisis in the 1980s, which uh, was swiftly crushed, uh, and the region became peaceful. But this time around, it was protracted. And so the response to the terrorism has had a lot of flaws and shortcomings. Uh, and so even though the insurgency itself had has led to thousands of deaths that are avoidable. The program by the Nigerian authorities um, to counter the insurgency has also led to deaths of innocent civilians. And as we've discovered, cases of people being forcefully disappeared and people going missing as well. 
the response of the state forces to the Boko Haram crisis uh, was to a large extent, you know, violating local laws and international treaties, uh, the lack of transparency, the high-handedness, the extrajudicial killings, uh, the fact that people, people's human rights were getting violated on a regular basis also meant that, you know, a lot of innocent lives were lost. And it also meant that people could not confirm the status and the whereabouts of people who were arrested or people who had encounters with state agents. And that means even if your family member is is dead, there is no way for you to know for certain. And and we've come to realize with this reporting that that is a different, if not an advanced form of grief and anguish for these people. So for me, I've, I've start, I started reporting the Boko Haram crisis in 2020. My first visit to my degree was in September 2020. And I, at, at the time, I was reporting for a project about transitional justice, trying to understand the welfare conditions of displaced people, trying to understand cases of reintegration and rehabilitation and compensation for victims of war. And so I've done lots of stories in the past about how people have been victimized by this crisis. But it, it, but when I started reporting about missing people, I realized that it was a different ball game entirely because of how emotionally laden it is for the victims. And I, I saw that, you know, I was at, at first I was astounded how people could talk about losing their entire family, how people could talk about being brutalized and tortured while in detention, not having access to your family for several years, and do this with amazing stoicism, uh, with, you know, deadpan facial expressions. But when it comes to missing loved ones, they just are not able to keep themselves together. They would, they would cry they would break the break apart into tears and it was it was stunning for me uh but increasingly i became aware that it wasn't enough to just humanize the statistics and the numbers it was also important to dig into why such um numbers of people were going missing because it's it, it's just not normal and it's it's not right that we normalize it uh, we need to understand what went wrong what could have been done better to prevent those things from happening and it was also important to learn lessons so that we do not repeat the same errors the same injustices, and the same mistakes um, and if it's possible it's also really crucial that we get some justice for the victims and get accountability, you know, against the people responsible. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's um, that's a really important point is that that there is a lack of justice uh, for for these victims, and and part of what your reporting does is it demands that justice. You know, um, I was thinking about all of the the different components of the story that you guys had to tackle, right? Uh, you detail arbitrary arrests, these detentions in places like Ewa Barracks that were just horrific conditions. People died of 
of hypoxia, basically, of just being so many people in one small space that they ran out of oxygen. Um, but also on extrajudicial killings, you know, there was a, a, a sort of infamous moment in, I believe, 2014, when Boko Haram came in and broke people out of Giwa barracks. And many of the, the people who were arbitrarily detained saw it as an opportunity to leave and were later slaughtered as, uh, as the security forces tried to re-round up the prisoners. And then this campaign of mass burials. Um, there were a lot of layers to this story. And I'm wondering, as you were going through this, how did you, how did you think about when and, and how to approach the authorities to, to try and hold them accountable and to get their, um, you know, uh, maybe they had an explanation for why they were you know, suddenly piling things up in a cemetery and three days later they were gone. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about some of the satellite analysis that you guys did. Um, tell, me, tell me, when you're working on an investigation like this, how important is it to be in contact with the government to be able to get their side of the story and then to also try and hold them accountable with the facts that you've found? So, yeah, yeah, there were lots of uh, grievous allegations against the government that we came across. Um, I mean, we've reported this. I've reported this for several years. Um, I've seen a lot of in-depth research by organizations like, you know, the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, and I still came across facts that shocked me. Which, and you know, even following the publication, we have people tell us that this is this is just scratching the surface. Um, there was somebody who worked at Giver Barracks who approached me. Um, and and shared even and shared even more you know sh shocking details of the things that went that went on at the place. Um, so yeah, it was important for us to reach out to the government and hear that side of the story. And we did contact the army spokesperson numerous times. Um, but bef before that, we sent letters to the defense ministry and the army headquarters and what we did was we shared details of our findings and we also attached a list of 197 people uh, that we learned from our independent research were arrested at one point or the other by military personnel and whose families have not heard from them since then and so we we what we're basically doing was saying hey these are people that your men arrested and the families have not heard from them. Could you just check, confirm their status and let us know uh, so that we could get back to the families? But we did not receive any response from them. Yeah, but but what one of the things that I, I did want to address is that even though you didn't get a direct response from the army, a couple of weeks after you sent those letters, those initial findings, you got some interesting news from some of the folks that you had talked to, some of the families you'd talked to in Maiduguri. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yes, yeah, so I was I was visiting Maiduguri for um, a reporting project. And then somebody mentioned, by the way, that, uh, you know, the, uh, some families received calls from detainees at Giva Barracks. And I was like, this is amazing news. Why, 
did you not tell me about this earlier? Um, and so when I when I dug dug in, I realized that you know actually hundreds of people had received phone calls. Uh, the estimate at the time was over two hundred, and the calls kept coming in. These were people who hadn't spoken to their families in years, and their families were not sure whether they were dead or alive. Some some knew that you know their loved ones were in detention because what usually happens is when there's a when somebody is released or when there's a batch of release from the detention facility, they would they would uh, rally around the ex detainee and ask if you know they know whether their husbands or their fathers etc are in detention and then they get news this way which is very um unconventional and it's it's in fact one of the reasons why that prompted this reporting because i, I realized that i mean the provisions of the geneva convention is that if if somebody is held in detention you should allow communication between them and their families um, at the maximum security prison in bono this happens to a small extent when they bribe the prison officials. But at military detention facilities, there is absolutely nothing, no form of communication between them. And so it's the only way for them to hear news is from the cellmates that managed to, you know, leave the facility. Um, so, but now, yes, like you said, uh, they provided one phone and then the detainees would line up to use the phone. And those who have the phone numbers of their loved ones would reach out to them. Those who do not will call other people who can then get the phone numbers for them. And ultimately, they would they would reach out to them and speak to them. And it's it's just the most amazing update ever. So I'm curious, are you going to continue following up and writing about um, this campaign of, of extrajudicial killings and, and mass burials and the missing the missing persons crisis? What's what's next for for this story? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, the, the responses have been. We we were scared at the point <laughs> that the because of course the authorities did not respond officially, but uh, uh, there's been intimidation, there's been you no know, subtle veiled threats, um, and. And, you know, you can, in a way, it's also impact because it means they are reading the story. It means they, uh, but but the good thing is they cannot, you know, puncture the accuracy of the story. Um, and they've never said, hey, your reporting is wrong or or anything of such. Uh, they are just scared about reputation and managing their, their brand, their image and all that. And I, I think... The, the only way forward is just to keep mounting pressure uh, and because the solutions are quite, we are not asking for too much. We are not asking for you to jail people, you know, or to prosecute. The, 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 the requests from the families and the victims are simple and straightforward and they are achievable. And um, I, I think the only way to get them is to just keep shaking the tree until the fruits of justice fall from it. And yeah, so we will we will definitely keep doing that. I I will keep reporting this crisis because it is huge one and it is also not getting a lot of attention from the industry generally. And so if we have this access, it's it's also a form of responsibility 
for us to make sure that we do the best we can with that access. Yeah. Kunle, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for your reporting, uh, for your tireless work on this. I know it took you more than a year uh, to do all of the reporting and all the documentary evidence. And um, we're, we're thrilled to have co-published this with Human Engel. So thanks again. Keep shaking the tree until the fruits of justice fall. I love that. You, you know, Erin, I think something that stood out to me in this conversation was just how important it must have been to have a fairly local reporter working on a story like this. Just like with the Afghanistan investigation, when I read the Nigeria story, I actually felt transported to the country. Absolutely. So Kunle isn't local local. He's not living in or from Maiduguri, which actually could have been a disadvantage since being too close to a story can also make, make it difficult to report both legally and you know, there's there's all sorts of little complicating factors uh, of reporting on your own community. But he knows the area well, knows the culture and the politics, and wasn't just parachuting in with a notebook and a translator for a weekend. He was actually able to go back uh, to the community again and again over the course of the year and build trust and contacts. He would have never gotten the hospital records that showed how over time the, the army stopped filing each death separately, for example, if he'd only been able to go once. The other thing, obviously, is the incredible results the reporters yielded. It must be so profound for those families to have heard from their loved ones after so long. Yeah, you know, Kunle called me with the news about that a few days before we published the initial report. And I have to tell you, after editing 9,000 words about mass graves and arbitrary detentions for several months, I I actually cried on the phone. Uh, We just published a follow-up story on New Lines about some of those phone calls, and I'd really recommend our listeners go give it a read, along with both of these reports and several other of our investigative pieces that came out this fall. Um, We'll be joined by other contributors in the future to talk about their long-form and investigative journalism, and we hope you'll uh, give those episodes a listen. This has been The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I've been your host, Erin Brown. I hope you'll give both pieces we've talked about in this episode a read and that you'll follow the podcast and check in for our latest episodes.